1: Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show.
2: Welcome
0: to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan Live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan
2: Poisner.
1: Hi, everyone. Here in Toronto, it's midwinter, a bit of a dreary time of year. The spring seems so far away, and the winter just keeps going. As a survival strategy, some of us focus on reading seed catalogs and dreaming about what we will plant this spring. Now as an urban orchardist, it's also a nice time for me to think about everything I've learned this past year, about growing fruit trees, orchards, and perennial edibles. And so, this month I've decided to do a pre-recorded program, featuring some of the best interviews I've had on the show in the past year. And it's going to be a real mixed bag. We'll start off in Siberia, with the story of researcher Bill Schroeder, who went to that freezing cold part of Russia and learned about sea buckthorn. He was fascinated. The Russians were using sea buckthorn berries to develop highly nutritious food for cosmonauts in their space program. And he thought it'd be a great idea to bring these plants to Canada and to breed them for our own unique conditions and needs. Now, if that story is one of adventure, my next story could be made into a horror film. That was when I spoke to author Jessica Walliser about the gruesome bug-eat-bug world out there. Jessica is the author of Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, and she introduced me into the world of parasites, predators, and pollinators. It's a great interview, but you may not want to be eating your lunch at that time. Now in the second half of the show, we'll talk about fire blight, a nasty disease that strikes fear into anyone who grows apple pear or Asian pear trees. We'll explore what this disease is and how you can prevent its spread. Finally, we'll end this show by looking into a crystal ball to see the future of growing fruit trees and how the realities of climate change may affect the trees that we will need to grow. So we'll start our show today with the story of sea buckthorn plants cultivated extensively by the Russians in the 1980s. These plants produce bright orange berries that are nutrient rich and that have lots of health benefits. The Russians grew the plants in order to produce sea buckthorn extract and they used that as a supplement for their cosmonauts. The sea buckthorn extract was also supposed to help protect those cosmonauts from radiation. In 1985, Canadian researcher Bill Schroeder visited Siberia on a seed collection mission, and he noticed acres and acres of these amazing orange berry shrubs. He learned more about them and thought, hey, someone should bring this plant to Canada and breed it for Canadian production. And so that is exactly what he did. I spoke to Bill Schroeder of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Swift Current Research and Development Centre in Indian Head, Saskatchewan. And he told me his story.
3: Well, there's a a bit of a history to it. I'm I'm a plant collector uh, and have been uh, on many expeditions of mainly to very northern climates of Siberia and northern China and in 1985, I was uh, on a seed collection mission looking for different types of, of tree and shrub species for use in shelter belts, and as we were traveling throughout the Siberian countryside, I noticed these huge areas and acreages, acres of, of orange um, orange buried shrubs, so I, I finally had to Get them to stop the the jeep, and we got out and we had a look at these these plants, and and I had instantly recommended recognized them as sea buckthorn, which was a plant we've been growing in the Canadian prairies probably since the 1950s for for shelter belts uh, and other revegetation type projects. So we had never thought them as a fruit uh, fruit uh, producing shrub. We thought them more as a a shrub that could be used to stabilize soil hmm. but what I found when I was in Siberia was that the uh, the Russian government was planting extensive acreages of this of this plant to supply f- uh, fruit concentrate for use in their space program so what was happening is the cosmonauts were were taking sea buckthorn extract into space with them both as an ointment to to uh, to put on their skin and to uh, prevent radiation or uv radiation burn but also as a food supplement because of its high nutritious uh, content so so that got me very interested well this is a shrub that we can we grow very well in canada and and it's got these these very very unique characteristics that we really hadn't hadn't thought of before and i, I sort of thought of you know i can relate the sort of the, the, the rise of C. Buckthorn after that visit, sort of like, you know, a, a talented performer or artist that's, that sort of worked in obscurity for many years, but uh, finally is going to become an overnight success. And so I thought, well, that might just happen with C. Buckthorn. Uh, and once if, if it's brought to the North American market.
1: So so you brought back seeds or cuttings, I guess, well, from Siberia? Well, to
3: begin with, I, I, the first, my first trip, I, I just brought back memories and, and <laughs> what I'd seen. My next trip, which was uh, two years later to the same area, I had made arrangements to actually specifically uh, meet with some of the sea buckthorn uh, breeders in, in Russia, uh and made arrangements then with them to provide me with some germplasm in the form of seed that I would bring back to Canada. And that was the start of what began as a a 25 year long breeding program.
1: Now you worked on this amazing for 25 years, you were developing different varieties of sea buckthorn. But Bill, what was wrong with just planting the seeds here and using the Russian uh, varieties?
3: well i th- I think there there's there's a couple things there one one is that sea buckthorn is dioecious, so the male and female plants are separate of course, and if you're use, planting just seeds as we were doing in shelter belts for all those years, you get about a fifty fifty uh ratio of of male and female plants so so planting seedlings for fruit production isn't the most efficient use of of the uh of the area now. The other thing with the the Russian cultivars that had been developed, and they were very well adapted to that area of Siberia, and and some of the, the varieties that I did bring back with me to test in in the prairies did fairly well, but I really thought that we needed to have a Canadian developed and fully adapted sea buckthorn varieties that that. Saskatchewan and Alberta and Manitoba, and for that matter, Canadian growers could could say this plant was developed for our use, it's specific for our needs, and they could use that as a, an opportunity to mark a Canadian bred and developed sea buckthorn plant.
1: So when, when you were developing these plants, what qualities were you looking for? Bigger berries or longer, you know, I don't know. What, what, what were the qualities you were hoping to imbue into these plants?
3: Well, breeding for a, a larger berry is not that difficult. Um, it's just a matter of selecting uh, individuals with large berries. And, um, and so it's a, it's a fairly easy task. So... So we very quickly got some very large fruited plants. Now, as the name sea buckthorn tells you, it can be a very thorny plant. So this was the this was the uh, area that I really focused my breeding program on was to trying to develop a large fruited, thornless variety. And to do that, I needed to conduct many different crosses using many different parental lines to try to bring forward some of the genes that, were, uh, that would develop a thornless uh, plant. Hmm. And what I found is that the, the gene for thornlessness really came from the male plant. So when I was identified thornless male plants, I could very regularly transfer that thornless gene into the, into the, uh, the female plant u- using the, uh, the gene that's coming from the male.
1: So, how many different varieties did you develop over this twenty five years
3: well i think I think when i when I think of varieties that I released i, I ended up releasing uh, four varieties. But to get to that four varieties, we screened over twenty five thousand individual mm-hmm. genotypes um, and from there, we went to about one hundred and twenty promising uh, individual cultivars. And from that, those 120 promising cultivars, we ended up with four cultivars that were officially released uh, and are available to growers.
1: Okay, and what are those cultivars?
3: Well, the the first one that we released was called Harvest Moon. Uh, the second was Orange September. And the uh, the third was Autumn Glow, and the last one is prairie sunset
1: and and for instance if i were was thinking of planting uh sea buckthorn how would i choose what's the difference uh, in general between these varieties
3: well they all have very large fruit they all have are, are quite sweet so if you when we measure sweetness in bricks so the 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 bricks value would be greater than 10 for all four varieties what really separates them, I think, is, is mainly their their mature or when they mature. When their fruit is ripe, Harvest Moon is mature, matures fairly early. Um, orange September is fairly late, and Prairie Sunset and Autumn Glow are somewhat in between. And when I say mature, the difference of maturity might be up to three to four weeks. Oh. So if Harvest Moon is maturing in mid-August, which it does in Saskatchewan. Uh, Orange September would be maturing in probably the first uh, first week of September. So there's quite a, quite a range uh, of time between when the uh, how long it takes for the, the the fruit to reach the point where you want to harvest it.
1: So that's great for somebody who's thinking of starting a, a small orchard, and that means that they can be supplying these berries to manufacturers or to the public for quite a few months.
3: Yes, and that that's. You know, I'm a, a, a big supporter of, of diversity in an orchard and and having sort of uh, cultivars that are, are certainly not identical, but will give you these opportunities to extend your your harvest season and uh, and also I find that that uh, by doing that you, you you have a better handle on any any uh, management of any diseases and insect pests that, that mm-hmm. may occur. Although I must say that. That sea buckthorn has very. We found very few insect and disease problems uh, in Canada uh, compared to what I've seen in Europe and in in, uh, in Russia.
1: Hmm. Okay. So you you over the years you released these varieties. Did it take off right away? Was it the overnight success that you dreamed of?
3: Not really. <laughs> yeah. I mean. One could have hoped that you know that we could get the uh, the plant material into uh, into the hands of growers very quickly, um, but that didn't happen. It's um, it's it's a small niche market. Uh, I found that most a lot of the nurseries weren't familiar with the plant. Um, there wasn't much ornamental value to it, uh, so there wasn't a lot of interest in propagating on large scale. The other thing that uh, the growers, when they're when they're planting fruit varieties, they they don't want to spe- spend the same amount of money as you would for an ornamental plant. So it was it was really difficult to convince propagators that that they should be growing sea buckthorn. It's sort of the chicken and egg thing, you know. The you know growers wanted it, but they you know at the time the markets were a little bit soft. They didn't know where they were going to sell them. Um, so, so the nurserymen well they, they didn't really have a feel there was a strong enough market to really put a lot of effort into now the nice thing about sea buckthorn is it's very easy to propagate so uh, it, it grows very well from hardwood cuttings as well as softwood cuttings so it's not a difficult plant to propagate so uh, once nurseries became aware of that uh, they seemed to to Take the take the lead, in and in at this time, I think that there are nurseries that are actually producing some of these cultivars. Uh, at the same time, however, there is a lot of of sea buckthorn material that's coming in from uh, Europe and uh, and Russia. Uh, not that that's a bad thing, although I, I I am somewhat concerned of the trans transmission of some disease and in insect. Uh, particular disease and insect pests that may may affect the long-term viability of the of the industry in Canada. Um, as I said before, we've we've been fortunate that we've been able to stay relatively disease and insect-free with with sea buckthorn. Uh, but it's always a concern when you're bringing material in from from overseas that you may uh, inadvertently introduce some some new pests.
1: That was Bill Schroeder of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Swift Current Research and Development Centre in Indian Head, Saskatchewan. To hear more of the interview where Bill talks about how to grow sea buckthorn and he answers some listener questions, visit orchardpeople.com podcast and listen to episode 10 of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. So let's return from Russia and from our sea buckthorn adventure. It's time to grab a magnifying glass and have a look at what's going on in our own backyards. And I'll warn you, it's not always a pretty sight. There are so many insects out there and those little creatures have rich and sometimes scary lives. And they all have a role to play in our gardens. So in episode three of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, I spoke to Jessica Walliser of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She is the author of Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. I started off by asking Jessica what her goal was in writing this book.
4: Uh, My goal was essentially really to uh, connect the uh, happenings of the entomological community to those of the gardening community, um, some of the research that's taking place uh, with entomologists around North America is really pertinent to home gardeners and also to commercial farmers and market growers, but yet that research wasn't making its way to the home gardeners, and uh, or if it was, it was only in very, very limited pieces. And so what I wanted to do in this book was really create a easy-to-use, easy-to-understand bridge. Between all of these amazing studies that talk about how good beneficial insects are for the landscape, bring all of that to the home gardener, teach them how to use those studies to benefit themselves, and how to really build an ecosystem in the garden that fosters beneficial insects, and then in turn helps us control the pests.
1: Well, it's funny, because you talk about beneficial insects, and before I read your book, I thought of pollinators. Okay, beneficial insects are our happy little pollinators that come and help us pollinate our fruit trees and zucchini plants, whatever. Um, But what else do beneficial insects do?
4: Right, well, we we can basically talk about three different groups of beneficial insects. The first would be those pollinators, uh, which would be things like our native bees, some beetle species, flies, butterflies, um, you know, even hummingbirds fit into that category. Uh, But then the other two groups, which would be the predators and the parasitoids, what their job is to do is uh, they're good bugs because they help us control some of the pests that commonly feed in our garden. So, you know, they are um, just as important as pollinators, in my mind, because they help us get a very, very important balance, which in turn helps us to reduce pesticide usage um, in our gardens.
1: And you said there were three groups. What's the third group?
4: The parasitoids. So oh, the I pred- see. Pre- so, yeah. So predators are pests. Are, are excuse me. Predators are insects that capture and consume another insect directly. So if you think about a spider or a praying mantis or even a ladybug, they capture that aphid or that um, stink bug or another insect and they eat it directly. The parasitoids. How they work is they use that pest insect to house and feed their developing young. So this might be a parasitic wasp or a tachinid fly where the female will come along and she'll insert an egg into the back of a tent caterpillar, and that egg will hatch and the larva will tunnel into the tent caterpillar and consume it from the inside out, eventually leading to death. So a parasitoid is a lot like a parasite, except the parasite leaves its host alive. And a parasitoid brings eventual death to the host. So those are, you know, those are the two main groups of beneficial insects that are not the pollinators.
1: It's so funny because I know, Jessica, you started like I did. You're a gardener. You you weren't necessarily an expert in this. Uh, Were you like me when you started to realize how brutal this part of our garden's, is. I mean, it's it's like a zombie, a mini zombie apocalypse there, you know, all these bugs sort of eating other bugs from the inside.
4: Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's just a, when you come to, to think about it and you can compare it um, to something that is a little more on our scale, which would be, you know, the lions and the gazelles or the bobcats and the rabbits, um, you know, or even a bass and a minnow, right? We have this sort of the predator, it's called the predator and price cycle, and it exists in every ecosystem on this planet. So it would only make sense that it also exists in the insect world as well. But of course, that's on a much smaller scale than we are. And so we tend to not even notice that it's happening. But Right outside our back doors every day, all day long, it's a bug eat bug world, <laughs> um, you know. And you might think of it as gory, and and you know, your introduction. Uh, I was had a big smile on my face as, as you were giving your introduction because but it's true. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's not it's not necessarily a nice thing to witness, but uh, it's just part of the ecosystem of the garden.
1: Amazing. Now, it's interesting because for most of us gardeners, especially those of us who are planting perennial crops and fruit trees, our concern is the bad bugs. So we are annoyed to see that insects are eating the leaves of our trees um, or are laying their eggs under the, the skin of the fruit growing in the trees and stuff like that. Why? Like, we don't necessarily think of beneficial insects. So what is what, what's the relationship between good bugs and bad bugs?
4: Well, it's interesting that because so far on this planet, we have managed to identify about 1 million species of insects. But scientists estimate that there's between 2 and 20 million different insect species on the planet. So we've barely uh, managed to identify the tip of the iceberg. Uh, But what we do know about that 1 million or so species that we have managed to identify is that actually less than 1% of them are considered to be agricultural pests. We've got an incredibly small percentage of the insects that are out in your backyard that actually bring harm to your garden. But those tend to be the ones that we focus on. We spend money, we spend time, we spend energy, and and we really focus on controlling those bad insects. If we could just sort of flip our mindset around and begin to put that much time and energy and not even money, but you could put money, uh, and invest that instead into nurturing and encouraging the beneficial insects, what we would see once we start to focus on them is we do start to see um, a natural reduction in pest numbers because we've gotten that balance back into the garden that we lose every time we go out and we try to fight the bad guy. Um, So it's a matter of switching your mindset. It's not an easy one, but that's another purpose of this book is to really educate people what studies are out there, what they have shown, and how you can effectively use these techniques in your own landscape.
1: So if I were to buy into this whole concept and and read the studies and and say, okay, I'm convinced— would I no longer use sprays, whether they're organic sprays like um, lime sulfur and dormant oil, or non-organic sprays that many conventional um, farmers and orchardists use? Would we just walk away from that part of uh, you know pest control in our, our gardens and yeah, well, orchards? Yeah, <laughs> well,
4: yeah, I get that question a lot, and here's the thing: um, there are natural and pred- predator and prey cycle, which we talked about, right? And All of these going on in the insect world. But the biggest trouble that we've gotten ourselves into is the fact that many of the pests that we have to deal with in our yards and gardens and orchards are not native to the place in which we live. So, for example, the oriental fruit moth, which is really wreaking havoc for a lot of farmers and growers now, um, that's an introduced species. And when we brought it over here uh, accidentally, uh, what happened was we didn't bring the uh, predators and parasitoids that have evolved to help keep a natural control, we didn't bring those along too. So this insect came here with no natural controls in place, no system that checks and balances. Of course, the population explodes because nobody's there to keep it in check. And those are the instances where we really find ourselves having to turn the products to help control it. Same too with the brown marmorated stink bug. I know here in the east um, our orchardists in Pennsylvania are having a huge amount of trouble with this introduced um, species. The other um, thing is you know when you're growing anything in a monoculture when you have rows and rows of the same fruit tree um, that is essentially a big giant target and so we have to work a little harder to get that balance in place um, when we have a big monoculture like that. So no, Doing this system is not going to, you know, completely eliminate the need for um your organic pest controls that you use. But, however, it is intended to greatly reduce that and to make you think a little bit harder about the choices that you make.
1: It's funny because you talk about monocultures, and I always say that like a monoculture of, let's say, all apple trees is like an all-you-can-eat buffet for bad bugs, <laughs> you know? They can have as yeah, much as it they really want. Yeah, Yeah.
4: Yeah, it really is. And there's a great concept. Um, one of the things that I got to do in this book, which was really literally my favorite part of writing this book, was that I got to interview entomologists from all across North America and talk to them about some of the projects that they're working on. And um, there's an entomologist with the National Sustainable Agricultural Informational Service named Rex Starfor, and I had a, have a great interview with him in the book about the concept of farmscaping, mm-hmm. um, which is basically taking that in big orchard full of apples that for commercial production that's what you have to have, and instead of just having it. Of big, you know, lines of apples in a row, we start introducing other elements to it, um, whether it's something like a hedgerow, or ground covers, or windbreaks, or flowering rows of flowering um, plants and annuals in between, and we create more of a landscape out instead of a monoculture. And when we increase that complexity of the orchard, what we find is a natural reduction in pests and a natural increase in predation. Um, and there's a really interesting study that uh, the rates of parasitism in uh, orchards for things like tent caterpillars and codling moth caterpillars, um, in orchards that have flowering plants and weeds allowed to have a substantial portion in that orchard, there's an 18 times, uh, 18 rate increase in the parasitism. So when we get different elements of complexity in the orchard and step away from that monoculture, we have a greater chance of naturally reducing those pest
1: numbers. So here you wrote this beautiful book, and it's for gardeners. And so is what you're saying Uh, that the plants that we choose can help to bring this balance into place, that just by planting the right things, we can attract these uh, beneficial insects. Is that your philosophy?
4: Absolutely, yeah. We can attract them, and even more importantly is we can support them. So we can create this habitat for them where they're getting what they need as far as food um, resources. They're also getting habitat, you know, egg-lying sites. Um, places to hunker down for the winter when they have all that they need then their populations naturally increase and we get better and better predation um, and uh, and predatory results and so it's really a cool system and there's tons of research to back it up um, which i wanted to have in this book because i think that's so important you just can't say it works you actually have to have the proof to back it up
1: that was jessica walliser author of attracting beneficial bugs to your garden and it's well worth your time to listen back to episode three of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, because Jessica continues on to tell me six ways to attract beneficial insects to your garden, and one of them is planting a beetle bank. That, to me, sounds like a worthwhile investment. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Education website, OrchardPeople.com. You're listening to a special pre-recorded episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show on realityradio101.com. And thanks for listening. We're coming up after the break. We will discover why fire blight is not a farmer's friend. Coming up. Did you know that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery, where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buy fruit trees. That's buy-fruit-trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree and learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com.
5: My name is Mike McNairn. I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists. They're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture and we have many years of experience We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call. Here's how to reach us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon.
1: Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario and Coquitlam, B.C., Visit universalfieldsupplies.com for more information. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. In this special program, I'm bringing you some of the best interviews in the program in the last year. Now, in the first half of the show, we spoke about a researcher's sea buckthorn adventure in Russia, and about how beneficial bugs can be very scary, and why you may not want to meet them in a dark alley if you are a fellow bug. Now in the next interview, I talked to an expert about one of the most dreaded fruit tree diseases if you grow apples or if you grow pear trees. It's fire blight, and to an outsider, the symptoms of fire blight may look innocent enough. The brown, burnt-out-looking branches may just look like branch dieback. The result, perhaps, of not watering your tree enough. But it's much more wicked than that. Fire blight can take out entire orchards. I spoke about it with Dr. Carrie A. Peter, Assistant Professor of Fruit Tree Pathology at Penn State Fruit Research and Extension Center. I started by asking her to explain a little bit about what she does.
6: So uh, my role is the tree fruit pathologist for the state of Pennsylvania. So I take care of managing tree fruit diseases, educating growers, and how to manage diseases of their tree fruit trees. So tree fruit includes apples, pears, peaches, nectarines, apricots, plums. And one of those diseases that I I help growers uh, try to manage and not get the better of them is fire blight.
1: So, to what extent have you been seeing fire blight in your area in recent years?
6: Well, I started in 2013, and that was a relatively calm year. And then in 2014, I, I call that the year that Mother Nature hazed me, and that was an awful fire blight year. And I actually, that was actually considered an epidemic. Uh, year, and it, the entire Northeast was affected by fire blight last year um, in 2014, and it was also affected in 2015 as well. And the reason was due to the environmental conditions; it was warm and wet during the right times. And then this year, uh, the season for fire blight wasn't as bad, uh, but we dodged a bullet. However, there are our neighbors around us, and the north and um, east of us weren't as lucky. So it's it's been a challenging few years.
1: Well, what exactly is fire blight, and how does it spread?
6: The fire blight, it's a bacterial disease, and it's native to North America. Uh, so that's what makes it especially challenging. It's endemic in North America. And uh, the fire blight, uh, it the most vulnerable stage of the tree is during bloom time. And the bacteria finds its way to the bloom by either... Uh, insects or splashing rain or water, it can infect the bloom uh, due to openings in the base of the bloom, and when the bacteria enter that those uh, openings at the base of the bloom called nectaries, it gets in the uh, bloom and in the tree, and it can cause disease right there and then in the blossom. So we call that blossom blight. When the disease progresses in the tree at that stage, you can get oozing, bacterial ooze, and it can continue to spread throughout the tree, and that's when we can see the characteristic shoot blight, where the young tender shoots of growing trees are especially susceptible. We'll see that shepherd's crook, uh, that characteristic shepherd's crook or candy cane. Now, uh, when we see that the disease progression in the tree, it will kill the plant tissue and it will create a canker. And that canker will serve as the overwintering source from year to year as a place for uh, the fire, black, fire blight bacteria to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And so the bacteria will uh, live at that region of dead and living tissue. And so that is where the source of bacteria uh, that is available to cause disease comes
1: from every year. So that's really interesting. So there is, so it sounds like it comes in with at bloom time. It sneaks in via the blooms. And it sounds like it works its way through the branches into, I don't know, does it get to the trunk of the tree if you wait long enough? Or Depending on
6: how old the tree is, the younger the tree, the more susceptible it is to get infection in the trunk. Mm. And so if it's a brand new tree, you could have possibly tree death in the same year.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I've seen that. Unfortunately, here in Toronto, we've had severe problems this year. Apparently, it started last year. I didn't see it this year. Boom. It's been all over. It's been very challenging. Yeah. Um. So, okay, you talk about cankers. Now, for those listeners who may or may not know, uh, the cankers, the canker can be all sorts of things. It can look like an oozing sore on the tree or a hard patch. Is there something in particular that the canker, a fire blight canker will look like? A Dark patch,
6: as mm-hmm. far as what it, how it's different. Uh, well, oftentimes you'll see at at the base of a dead area of tissue. So that that's that's a real telltale sign that if you see a dead shoot and you trace back that the death of the tip of the shoot, the necrosis, the browning area to the back, you can sort of see. It, it looks like a sunken area of the branch. It looks the the bark looks wrinkled. Um, it's it's blackened or brown and it's um there's a misconception that this is the plant's response it's actually a good thing and that's incorrect the canker is actually it's dead tissue that is caused by the bacteria
1: well it's interesting we've had already a lot of emails coming into the studio and one of them just jumped up uh, jumped out at me so it's from lisa here in toronto And she sent some pictures, unfortunately, I don't know, I'll send them to you later to have a look at. But she says, here are a few pics of Asian pear and sweet cherry trees at San Romano Orchard, which is where she is. Mm -hmm. Can you help us identify what is trying to attack these trees and the best way to deal with it? I would like to know if it's acceptable to prune each individual suffering leaf. And also, does a fruit tree have the ability to heal itself in any way? Now, I know this particular orchard, and um, in some of the trees you're getting, uh, it starts off, at least with the pear trees, I'm not sure about the cherries, but, you know, you get blackening around the edge of the leaf. So she's just wondering, hey, can I get this early? What what comment Uh, do you have for Lisa?
6: So as far as, if if it is fire blight and the season's dry, you could get ahead of it where you could prune back the branch. You don't necessarily want to just prune off the leaves. You need to prune out the wood. And so the, the wood is what has to be removed because the, if it truly is bacterial, the bacteria is going to be in, in the plant's vascular system, in the veins, and that's basically the major conduit system in the plant that allows transport of water and, and nutrients. So it's important to get it. You want to prune ahead of where you see the decline of the branch. So in the case of Asian pears, um, that's what you would wanna do. And in the, in the case of cherries, depending on what it is, again, if it is something either bacterial or fungal, uh, you would wanna get, you wanna prune beyond that stage of where you see the disease progressing. And during the summer months, the tree can form a callus over where you pruned and that is a way it, quote-unquote, heals itself. It heals that area so it no longer is susceptible to something that could be penetrating into the tree at that open wound because a pruning cut is a wound. So pruning in the summer oftentimes is, is better in some cases for it to manage some diseases because there is recovery time for the tree. Um, but the, the main management strategy for fire blight, though, is actually to wait until uh, winter to be able to prune out the diseased areas because we're ensured that the bacteria has stopped moving through the tree. It stops spreading. And when it stops spreading, that minimizes the chance of you, uh, the pruner of spreading the disease because there is a high probability of spreading the disease Uh, during the summer months, just because of the conditions that could be present, environmental conditions that could be present at the time.
1: That's interesting, because that's what I was going to ask you. Um, When you read about fire blight, it always says it starts with the blossoms, and so you think, hey, you know, it's July, it's August, uh, nothing to worry about. If there's fire blight in there already, in my tree already, Okay, I have a problem. But if the tree, if another tree doesn't have fire blight, I don't have to worry about it getting in because it's it's not blossoming. Is that the case?
6: Not necessarily. Uh, if, if the tree, if you if you don't have blossom blight, that is terrific. However, if your tree continues to grow through the summer months, and oftentimes, um, depending on how much rain occurs. Uh, we could get growth through the whole season. But typically, fruit trees stop growing in July. And But up until that point, if there's succulent shoot growth, meaning nice green tender shoots, those tender shoots are still very susceptible to fire blight and getting the fire blight infection, that characteristic shoot blighter, the shepherd's crook. And insects are very drawn to succulent shoots. Um, they could feed on those succulent shoots, creating a wound. And if there's any bacteria around, that bacteria could then cause disease on that brand-new shoot just because of that insect wound. So, so mm-hmm. still, growers still have to be, or, and homeowners still have to be pretty vigilant until about halfway through the summer when the trees stop growing. They start shifting their energies from pushing out new growth to, if the tree produces fruit, they shift their energies to producing fruit, like halfway through the season. And so, when the tree um, branches and shoots are no longer green and succulent, we call we call it now hardening off. Uh, the bacteria can't penetrate those shoots.
1: Mm-hmm. So
6: growers still and homeowners still have to be pretty vigilant until
1: about um, you know mid July or so. So when you say vigilant, it's like don't prune it off in the hot season. Just because, I mean, from what I understand from what you're saying is that the pruning itself does create a wound. Perhaps that bacteria can get in there before the wound heals itself up. So maybe... Could
6: very well, depending on how prevalent the disease could be uh, in that area. And since I know, you know, your region is experiencing a pretty bad fire blight year, you know, if if there's more than like two or three shoots on a young tree it really behooves the person to not do anything because you could make the situation worse by pruning out you know, the branches, you're creating wounds, you know, There's a chance of spreading the disease because the tree is encouraged to grow now that it's being pruned, and that's just going to cause more succulent shoots, which become more susceptible to fire blight. So it's a vicious cycle. It can be a very vicious cycle during a bad fire blight year.
1: That was Dr. Carrie A. Peter, Assistant Professor of Fruit Tree Pathology at Penn State Fruit Research and Extension Center. To hear the rest of the interview, listen to Episode 12 of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. You can find the podcast at orchardpeople.com podcast. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. Coming up, we'll dust off our urban forestry radio show Crystal Ball and explore how growing fruit trees is going to look different in the future as a result of climate change. I'm Susan Poisner and we'll be back after this short break.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves. Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware.
7: Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply, and all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer hand manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hens. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-saw.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer.
1: urban forestry radio show on reality radio 101 i'm susan poisner and in this show i cover fruit trees food forests and arboriculture thanks for tuning in so we're going to wrap up the show today with a peek into our urban forestry radio show crystal ball which we keep here in the studio my goal is to see what fruit tree growing will look like in the future You see, we are now facing the challenge of climate change. And instead of being able to rely on weather conditions that we always had, we're facing new uncertainties. So in Episode 8 of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, I spoke with Michael Gregory Peck, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Horticulture and Sustainable Fruit Production Systems at Cornell University. And we spoke about how climate change affects fruit trees today and how we can prepare for the future. But first, I asked him how he got into this field.
5: Sure.
0: Um, so I actually, um, maybe like a lot of your listeners, come from a suburban environment, didn't have a background in agriculture, but got very interested in it uh, during college, spent some time actually working on farms in California, and actually in an apple tree nursery and. Um, From there, my interest in the the science of how how plants work and more specifically how how tree fruit work and how we can produce them more sustainably became a passion of mine and and a career of mine and went on to graduate school at Washington State University and then my PhD at Cornell University.
1: So I understand that a lot of what you do involves the challenges of growing fruit trees and understanding how fruit trees work. So... Do you feel that that climate change is one of the challenges that our fruit trees are now facing?
0: Absolutely. Uh, there's no there's no question that the weirdness as you described it of the weather that we experience, these shorter-term episodes where we have ice storms or we have these early spring events, uh, a lot of them can be attributed back to larger patterns and uh, changes that are happening in our global climate.
1: So, so why is this a problem for fruit trees? Their job is just we care for them, and their job is to give us fruit. <laughs> so, so where is the problem?
0: Right. Well, we, we we are we are managers of of the trees, but the trees are um, natural, you know, natural uh, um, plants, and they they are you know, responding to the environment around them. And so if the environment changes, then the plants also need to change, or we need to change how we manage them. And for tree fruit, which are have a very long life cycle, naturally they change very slowly. It takes generations and gener- generations for, for plants to change, unless through concerted breeding efforts. So that leaves us with needing to develop management tools to be able to produce tree fruit in a in a changing climate
1: well let's talk about some of the the problems and and uh, for myself you know as a community orchardist here in toronto um, as i said in my introduction um, we have had these early springs and then you get a late frost and i remember the first time that happened i was talking to one of my mentors and i said well the blossoms are open in the park and my apricot trees or whatever it were that they were blossoming and everything looks good, but there was this freeze. And I said, is this a problem? What could happen? So what are the problems that can happen to fruit trees as a result of this? Like, I was told that the blossoms could die as a result of the frost, and then you have no fruit at all that year. So is that the case? What are these problems that we can expect to see?
0: Well, there are many, and I think you hit on one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have for tree fruit production. So Many of our fruit trees um, are, are deciduous. Um, so That includes apples and pears and peaches, uh, cherries, plums. They go through a period of dormancy in the winter. There's no leaves. There's very little active growth. The trees are in this kind of suspended animation. And then they start to grow again in the spring. And the first thing that they do is that they bloom. And so that is a... Um, Uh, evolutionary mechanism that they've developed in order to attract pollinators and also to provide them with a long growing season to create fruit and to allow for seed dispersal. So there's a lot of advantages to being spring-blooming, a spring-blooming plant. But uh, as you pointed out, there's also a disadvantage, and and you hit on the key one, which is frost. And so frost is a challenge that growers of tree fruits have always had with, with these crops, but what we're seeing is a, is a shift, and a shift of the phenology, which is the understanding of, of the progression of from bud break through flowering, moving earlier and earlier in, in the spring, earlier and earlier in the year. And so that increases our chance for having a spring frost. And, and as you said, those frosts are very damaging to flowers, and so flowers are, are very sensitive to cold temperatures
1: hmm so if there was and please i'm not asking for this universe but if there was a frost tomorrow our buds are starting to break here in toronto i don't know what it's like there they're just starting to break if there was a frost um would these buds die um what does that mean does that damage the tree does that just mean no fruit what happens and how do i know if the buds are dead
0: great question so during the winter, during dormancy, what we call endodormancy, which is this state of, of rest in the tree, the trees actually, uh, and the buds specifically, uh, are in a state where they can handle very, very cold temperatures, and that's why you're able to grow apples in Toronto, and I'm able to grow apples in New York, and so they can handle these temperatures uh, down to minus 20 Fahrenheit when they're in a state of dormancy. But as that progression from bud break to flowering starts, the cold hardiness of those buds becomes less and less. So as you go from bud break to flowering to fruit set, what happens is that they can handle um, temperatures that are uh, not as low as you go through there. So um, as you as you get to flowering and you're at full bloom, the trees may not be able to handle temperatures much below freezing.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So so basically, your flowers will not survive. I mean, it wouldn't mean that the tree itself would die. It would just mean no fruit that year, I suppose.
0: Correct. The 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 wood on the tree and the roots of the tree can handle temperatures that are much colder than the flowers can.
1: So would you say this issue of um, early bud break, uh, late frost, that's the main problem when it comes to the dangers brought to us by climate change, or is there other problems?
0: Well, I would say that is is one of the primary issues that we're starting to encounter, and I would not say it is the only only problem that we're going to have with climate change. Um, uh, We have a potential for a lot of different um, uh, effects, impact tree fruit production, whether it's for a commercial apple grower or for you in your community garden. Um, So we're going to have, with climate change, uh, more heat, Hmm. So then we have the potential for more heat stress that can lead to physiological disorders um, like bitter pit, um, sunburn on the fruit. It could, um, our our weather patterns are going to change, and we may have more drought periods which means in areas that previously had ample rainfall in the summertime, they may now need irrigation in order to keep those trees alive. We hmm. also are going to see changes in um, the amount of disease that we have with more rainfall. That's the potential for more disease incident events to happen. Um, and also for insects. Um, you know, our insects go through multiple generations. Many of our pest insects will go through multiple generations in a single season. So, for example, um, uh, the classic worm in the apple, the codling moth. Typically, in our environment here in central New York, we'll have two generations per year. If we have a growing season that's four weeks longer, it's, we have the potential of having a third generation. So that's mm. that much more opportunity for, to have uh, pest damage to our fruit.
1: Wow. So that doesn't sound like good news, but maybe this is a silly question. If it's getting warmer, maybe we'll get to plant some trees for warmer zones. Maybe we'll be growing in Toronto or New York, I don't know, mango trees, <laughs> uh, citrus. Well, we, we would
0: be in big trouble if we start growing tropical tree fruit in, in Toronto. Um, that would be one of the uh, signal that gl- global climate change has reached an apex of, of massive change. But, um, but we could see very likely a change in the varieties that we're growing. So we talked about spring frost and the, the danger of losing our crop due to a frost event. Well, uh, perhaps we start selecting varieties that <coughs> are going to bloom later in the season.
7: Mm-hmm. And so that
0: way they escape the spring frost. We so also may have um, potential for a longer growing season. So some varieties that we have a hard time ripening, like Granny Smith or Pink Lady, we may be able to actually grow in our climate now.
1: Hmm. So there will be some changes. It might not be as extreme as mangoes and uh and, and sort of outdoor lemon trees here. So <laughs> well, I sure hope it's not that extreme. <laughs> I hope not too. I, I I found it interesting what you said in the beginning of the show. So so we see that change is coming for whatever reason, because of this climate change or you know, changing climate or challenges in the climate, whatever you want to call it. But what's interesting is trees have, over the millennia, I guess, have been changing and adapting, and and they are the way they are because they grew to be that way over time. Will they change and adapt to our new climate situation, our new climate reality?
0: Well, I have no doubt that nature um, has the ability to adapt, the, the, and, and certainly the... the The world, the globe, has gone through numerous climate changes, colder and warmer, um, over the course of history. However, um, what's unprecedented about what's happening right now is how quickly it's changing. And so we're talking about climate change factors that are going to be impacting us within 50 years or 100 years. And for uh, uh, perennial crops like apples and peaches, which have a very long generation time, they're not going to adapt that quickly, not without some sort of human intervention through a breeding program.
1: That was Gregory Michael Peck, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Horticulture and Sustainable Fruit Production Systems at Cornell University. Our conversation about what fruit growers can do to prepare for climate change continued on, and you can listen to the rest of the interview by checking out the podcast of Episode 8, of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. You can find it at orchardpeople.com podcast. Well, that's all for this little trip down memory lane, and it's been a great year for the Urban Forestry Radio Show. Hopefully, there will be lots and lots more interesting episodes and guests in the year to come. I am so grateful for all of the fantastic guests I've had on the show in the last year, and I'm really grateful for my fantastic listeners who email in their questions and comments during the live shows. I love hearing from you. So do tune in again next month. The Urban Forestry Radio Show runs on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern on realityradio101.com. And if you want an email reminder about upcoming shows, sign up for my monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com, which covers fruit trees, forest gardens, permaculture, and more. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website at orchardpeople.com, and I look forward to seeing you next month. been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com/podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month, and each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and our if you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at UrbanFruitTrees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again.